The Guardian. Hello and welcome back to the Sydney Siege Inquest recap with me, Michael Safi. And me, Bradley Jabour. Just as last time, we'll be attending and recapping every day of the Sydney Siege Inquest over the next two weeks. Back in May, the first segment focused on the inscrutable gunman Manharon Monas, trying to understand who exactly this man really was. You can hear those recap episodes by going to the iTunes store and searching Sydney Siege. You can also listen via your chosen podcasting app or device or by going to theguardian.com forward slash au. This second segment of the Siege Inquest focuses on five issues. I'll recap them quickly. The first one is bail. Should Marin Haramonas have been out on the streets when he committed the siege last December? Second is culture and community relations. To what extent was Monas embedded in you know, Sydney's Muslim communities? And from, where, from what we're hearing, not much at all. The third is the man's life and place in Iran on the back of uh, some new evidence that supposedly has come out in the last few months. Number four, terrorism and radicalization. In short, whether Mr. Monas can be assessed as having become radicalized when he committed the siege. And number five, the origins of the firearm. But enough of that. Bridie was at the siege all day today and you were live blogging at Bridie. Can you tell us what was the big story today? The big story today is uh, is bail. He was on bail at the time of the siege and we are just hearing more and more evidence that raises very serious questions about should he have been on bail. And I think we heard some evidence today that we hadn't heard before. Um, he had been charged with being an accessory to murder, which we knew, and he was bailed for that. After that, he was charged with three sexual and indecent assault offences, which we knew and he was bailed for that. A few months later, he was charged with 40 more offences, <laughs> sexual and indecent assault, and his police didn't oppose his bail then, and that's why he was out on the streets when he committed the siege. So there are questions about whether he should, in the first place, should you be given bail when you're under such serious charges? You know, 43 sexual and indecent sexual assaults, as well as being an accessory to murder, very serious charges in and of themselves. Today we find out, though, that when he committed at least three of those alleged sexual assaults, he was on bail for other Commonwealth crimes. He was already out on bail when he went and committed these three assaults. Yes, so obviously they would have been a violation of that bail, and he likely would have been put in jail, but the court was never told about this. The DPP Solicitor Director of Public Prosecutions didn't know about it, and the police didn't know about it. And a good portion of today was spent on, with one police officer trying to find out why, no, why this wasn't brought before the court. I must say, I mean, to me, that's surprising that you can, you can, I mean, you have a DPP who's trying to make an argument about why you shouldn't be given bail. And the fact that you've committed assault while on bail earlier doesn't come up. I mean, how does that not filter up to the DPP? Well, what happened was, and the, the coroner mentioned and the um, council assisting mentioned that this could be a result of us having eight different jurisdictions, meaning you know, different state courts and so on. But his other offences were Commonwealth offences. They were sending abusive letters to the families of dead servicemen. And he was found guilty and he served his time for that. But because it didn't happen in a New South Wales court or under New South Wales law, it didn't seem to come up. But the other question is, why wasn't it investigated more? Should the police have known about this? Should they have investigated and checked the dates and checked if he was on bail? You know, to me, it raises up these issues that we saw with the Luke Batty case last year, where the, the, the perpetrator of, of the crime in that case had been picked up by police you know, only recently. But because the warrant that he had been issued um, wasn't in the system, he was basically allowed to go free. And it makes you wonder, I mean, how important is information sharing to stop? In crime and how inadequate is it? Because by the sounds of things, it really is. Well, it seems in so many of these cases where bureaucratic blunders are a constant in so many of these places where people commit really violent crimes 
almost inevitably they've committed previous crimes and been given certain sentences or they're on bail. And we just see that layers of bureaucracy and government and our justice system not communicating with each other, which is worrying and a bit baffling as well, because we're not that big a country. It shouldn't be that difficult to communicate with each other. So if the big story is bail, what's today's little story? What's the thing that may have been missed but may end up becoming something to watch in the future? Well, Jeremy Gormley, the council assisting, went through, and so did Sophie Callan, the junior council assisting, went through what we're going to hear in the next couple of weeks. And what I thought was really interesting was an argument about whether this is a terrorist act or not. And they have experts who say, yes, it is a terrorist attack. It was designed to cause psychological impact beyond the immediate victims, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have experts disagreeing, and they're all terrorism experts and terrorism academics disagree. And we have some disagreeing and saying, no, it wasn't a terrorist act. He was more motivated by mental illness. And it's interesting. I thought because the divide seemed to be, you know, at least two of two of the Australian academics said that it wasn't a terrorist attack. Uh, one of them, Roger Shanahan from the Lowy Institute, said, and I've got the quote here, that it, that Monis was not motivated by political, ideological, or religious causes, but rather was someone with mental health issues acting on his own personal grudges. Bruce Hoffman from Georgetown University was the academic who said. He believed it was terrorism. And I wonder if there's any resonance in the fact that, you know, he's coming from outside. He's not across the kind of political football that this has become. I mean, this whole question of is it terrorism or not? I mean, it's something that perhaps to an outsider is a bit more obvious than it is to someone who's based in Australia. Well, it also struck me that he's American and he's an American with an opposing view to two Australians. And I wonder if it is because they've had that culture of war on terror and had those terrorist attacks closer to home and been going to war in America if they're more in the mindset of always fighting terrorism, fighting terrorism. And perhaps he's the one with the, you know, too close to it, even though it happened in Australia, obviously, but he's the one too close to, you know, terrorism and too, too involved in this debate for, you know, the past more than 10 years that he couldn't step back and see that it could be something else. Yeah, I mean, just for the record, his, his definition of terrorism is, the, is a fundamental, he says the fundamental aim of a terrorist's violence is to influence domestic or international politics or draw attention to him or herself and uh, his or her cause, which... I guess under a definition that broad, it's, you know, Monis is, is going to fit, right? I mean, I don't think so because we don't, we, we spent weeks in the inquest a few, a couple of months ago. Do we know his cause? That's Do true. we know yeah. his motivation? Yeah. We yeah. don't actually, you know, he put a shahada flag in the window. But beyond that, we don't, we, we still don't know his motivation. Yeah, or at least, I mean, there are so many competing motivations that we know. I mean, there's the Islamic State thing. But then we have the fact that he lost, he lost a court case only days before he was facing jail. And I think this kind of segues nicely, in fact, to the evidence we heard from um, a psychologist, Kate Burrell, who was brought in to decide whether Monis was uh, radicalised or not. And she made that point. She said that it was impossible to disentangle these questions of, of, of to what extent he was radicalised from the extent to which he was mentally quite ill. And, and, and in the end, she came down on this side of, uh, you know, this was more an act of desperation than radicalisation. Yeah, and they've, they've talked to leaders from both the Sunni and Shia Muslim communities in Australia who've said they basically knew nothing about him, only from, they only knew what they knew from the newspapers. He didn't behave like a sheikh, even though he said he was one. And one even pointed out that he seemed to have quite an amateurish understanding of Islam, which mm. was interesting as well. And as for um, his motivations with ISIS and everything, we keep hearing in the inquest, they still have not found any evidence that he had direct contact with anyone in Islamic State or yeah. connected to Islamic State. So that's the little, the little story. Let's say good day, bad day. Who was it a good day for? I think it was a good day. I think it's always a good day for junior counsel assisting Sophie Callan. This is your hero, Sophie Callan, yeah. I think she's great. I think she's so smart. She's so sharp. She really nails her questions. She's across her brief. And 
I think she's gorgeous. I think we've just nailed an, an exclusive <laughs> interview with Sophie Cowan as well after the siege wraps up. Oh, I hope so. What about a bad day? Who, who do you think came out of today not looking so good? Well, we only had one witness today, and it was Detective Senior Constable Denise Vivaeus, and she's from the um, Sex Crime Squad. I don't think it was a great day for her, but I don't think it's going to be a great day for any police officer on that stand. She always opposed Monis's bail, but opposed it on the ground. She was worried about... Um, the victims of sexual assault and they, they were scared of him and she was concerned about them but she didn't actually investigate far enough to find out that he was on bail when three of those offences occurred and she did spend the afternoon defending not knowing that and why she didn't know that and why she hadn't investigated that. Because I mean as we heard had that information been passed on it's it's possible that Monis may have been behind bars in December yeah, 2014. Exactly and her argument is quite valid so it's not to dismiss her she says she was more focused on the complainants the women that she was talking to and investigating their claims of sexual assault. And she thought, she obviously thinks that her argument was strong enough anyway without him being on bail, that she, he had a propensity for violence and the crimes were serious enough that he should have been behind bars. Yeah, and I mean, Gormley did make the point too that, you know, it's too simplistic to say anyone's to blame for what happened or even to say that, you know, had this bail decision gone differently, Monis may not have committed the crime. I mean, this idea is that, um, you know, ultimately this is not a court of um, blame, it's a court of fact-finding. And people who were, who were asked to decide whether someone should be on bail or not, essentially they're being asked to predict the future. And that's a really difficult thing. I mean, as you say, nobody could have known that Manharan Monas would have snapped in December and, and did what he did. Exactly. And Gormley, he, make, he did make sure that he emphasised that point. No one who dealt with his bail application at the time, police who opposed it or the DPP who supported it, could foresee the events that were going to happen. And of course, if they could have foreseen the events, he would not have been granted bail. Okay, now what's next? What can we expect in the coming days? Police, more police. So we're going to hear from people from the Homicide Squad who investigated and charged him with being an accessory to murder. And we're going to hear from more police from the Sex Crime Squad. And they will all talk about why they thought that he should have been on bail and um, the processes of that. Join us again tomorrow after another day of evidence and don't forget, the easiest way to catch us each day is to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks very much. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com audio.